Philippians chapter 14, verses 20 through 25 this morning. Read along with me. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convinced by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Good morning. Good to see you all. Really is good to see you all. Many of you know I've been quite ill for the last few weeks, and um, somebody asked if it was the coronavirus. I said, no, I hadn't even gotten an email from China, so I was pretty sure that wasn't, that wasn't true, and in my case anyway, due to my saintliness, it would be the halo virus. So uh, just wanted to be sure you all knew that. Um, if, if, you, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there is a pew Bible there, a black one, and uh, we should be on page 1141. We're working through our study in the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, this section, although I've got a short section here, only... Uh, six verses. Uh, there's so much packed into this and how it impacts the rest of the chapter. Um, we're going to, I'm going to throw a lot at you this morning. That's one of the things about having, having us preach through this as a team. I don't preach every week, so I have to give you two weeks worth every time I get up. And so I'm sorry, that's just the way it's working right now. But, and thank you so much for all of your prayers and concerns. And uh, as I've been going through this, they're still trying to figure out exactly what's going on with me physically. We'll find out. Friday, I thought we were on our way to emergency. Today, I'm here. We'll see, we'll see what the Lord does. Maybe be time, by the time I'm done, we can still get to emergency. We'll see how the day goes. Uh, when you come to a, a letter like this one um, to the church at Corinth, it should always cause us, both as individuals and as an assembly, to ask ourselves where we might fit on the spectrum of the issues that the Holy Spirit raises here through the Apostle Paul. We can't just set the letter aside. It's in God's Word. Um, we, because we don't have the exact problems the church there might have been going through, uh, doesn't mean we can just pass over it quickly and ignore uh, the content of what's really here. And certainly, as we've seen throughout, at least some of what they wrestled with, uh, we share at least in part. Uh, I think I can say with uh, a lot of confidence that we are not at present a church, uh, an assembly in division, especially over personalities. But we've certainly had seasons of that in the past. We're not immune to it. Uh, I'm grateful to say that at present, I don't see jealousy and strife among us as plagued them at that particular time. It doesn't appear that we have those seeking power and reputation among us, although I don't know everyone's heart. (laughs) Who knows what's going on below the surface with some. And we may be more inclined in the current cultural climate of American Christianity to seek for legitimization and standing in the eyes of the world. Now, that's a problem they had that we could share easily. There's a danger we certainly need to be on our guard about. We don't appear to have a case of open and scandalous sexual immorality that was so prominent in the church at Corinth, but but this is the age for it. And we certainly need to be on our guard that we don't fall into the cultural normalizing of sexual sin in any of its forms. That's a temptation for us in our day. We don't seem to have any factions vying for prominence or a trend of Christians suing each other among us in this assembly, but that does seem to be growing in the larger church overall and is a concern for us. There's no question that we face an ever-growing number of of really complex issues 
regarding marriage and cohabitation and divorce and remarriage and and problems within marriage relationships remain a perennial challenge. Just a short time ago, I ran into a couple, an older older couple. I say older now. That that must be they were in their hundreds. Um, they. <laughs> They were a little older than, than my wife and I, and, and they mentioned that while they were both professing Christians, they had decided that for financial reasons, they would not get married, but they would simply cohabit and be committed to each other. Well, that's becoming more and more prominent, uh, even in the church, and that's something that needs to be wrestled through scripturally. How, do, how does that look? What do we do with that kind of a situation? And there may still be vestiges of the places that you used to go or the things that you used to do before you came to the saving knowledge of Christ that you know now are just not commensurate with who you are in Christ. Those things shouldn't be at play anymore. Things you looked to for recreation or a sense of well-being that are at odds with the place that Christ ought to have in our, in our lives. I remember getting the position as national sales manager for Johnson Rose in 1992. And um, shortly after I got the position, the, the president of the American company that I was working for drove me up to Toronto to meet with the, the muckety-mucks there. And the president, the vice president of the, of the Canadian operation decided to take me out to lunch in order to celebrate my coming on board with the company. And their way of doing that was they wanted to take me to their favorite strip club. Now, I was in a tough position at that point. Our, our ensuing conversation nixed that particular direction but not without risk to my standing in the company and, the, and, and a newly minted job that had been created for me. You might be facing something like that in your own workspace. Paul's penetrating admonition about facing temptations of all kinds in chapter 10 has every bit the same application for our, ourselves as it did for them. And while we don't face the issue of physical head coverings in this congregation, it's still uh, an extant issue in some congregations. And, and the underlying principle of order among equals, especially in the church, remains just as fresh and relevant as it did then. As does the need to, be, to rightly regard the body of, and, and the blood of Christ when we come to the communion table and to make sure that we embrace all of our brothers and sisters in Christ equally, uh, irrespective of their socioeconomic standing. Loving one another is a never-ending never issue that affects only one congregation. It affects us as well. And now in this prolonged discussion in the balance of this chapter regarding spiritual gifts, while we don't have the types of public meetings, at least in our church, as they did where it appears that quite a bit of pandemonium broke out, once again, the underlying principles which emerge are needed for every church and in every generation. So there's much here for us to glean. And in the section before us this morning, Paul drills down to a bedrock principle that informs the rest of his comments, uh, not only in this chapter, but through the rest of the book, and how that principle is crucial to the entire Christian life and our understanding of God's economy for us as individuals and the greater assembly. I'm going to establish that in the text for you in just a minute, but... Drawing a bit from Jim's last sermon on this chapter a few weeks back, let me remind us all that understanding God's goal in bringing in salvation is bringing believers into maturity in the image of Christ. God has a goal. It's hard to know which route to take when traveling unless you have a clear idea of the destination. And so often the Christian life is lived as though there's no destination in mind. We just get saved and then we just kind of live. But he has a goal in mind. God articulates it very clearly for us. And, and so if that goal is in mind for us, well, do our lives comport with that goal? Are we living as though that's a, a reality for us? So as we've pointed out any number of times, uh, we take this uh, especially from the Ephesians chapter that... Um, that I've alluded to and Jim has uh, just recently. How he, that's speaking of Christ, 
gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, what's going on in the church. For what purpose? Well, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. What does that look like? Ah, well, for the building up of the body of Christ. What does that look like? He goes on to define his terms. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but rather... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. That's a destination. And so am I, am I on that road as part of my Christian life? Do I, do I really understand my Christian life is that that's where he's taking me and, and I need to be going along with where he's going? The destination of God and salvation and in all the gifts that he bestows on the church both in terms of of the office gifts, like apostles and prophets and pastor teachers, and individual gifts, each one that each of us has, because we each have at least one gift from what the scripture tells us, they're all aimed at this same goal, at bringing us to the unity of the faith, really really camping on, on soundly understanding what the faith is all about from the scripture, To the knowledge of the Son of God, unpacking who he is and what he's done and and what he's doing, what his his eternal plan is, and to the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ, that we may grow up in every way in him, into Christ, take on his character. So that means there's, there's something to be done here, something for us to be a part of. And the problem which persisted in Corinth and which can so easily infect us is this. And this is, this is a core problem that we're going to talk about this morning. And it's just this, that we mistake any spiritual gift either in ourselves or in anyone else for spiritual maturity itself. That's what had happened there. People were claiming they had specific gifts and that somehow meant that they were spiritually superior. They had some sort of, of leg up on other people. That because I may have some ability with which to serve the body of Christ, therefore I'm automatically mature or spiritual. And the fact is, here are these intertwined realities. The problem of disunity in the church at Corinth, which was the core problem that he was writing about from the very beginning, that's what this letter majors on, has its root in the problem of spiritual immaturity. Wherever there's immaturity, there's division. If you want to see that, stop by the nursery and watch one little one take a toy from another little one. And you will know the spirit of disunity. Loud and clear. Possessing a spiritual gift says nothing more about you spiritually than a natural talent says something about your emotional or psychological maturity. If natural talents meant psychological and emotional maturity, then those in Hollywood and in our rock bands would be the most mature of all. I don't have to prove that point, do I? And if you want to see where this mistake impacts the church the most, it's in choosing leadership in the church. When we decide on pastors or preachers or elders simply because they have a gift to speak or to teach, more than based on their character and growth in Christ-likeness. Man, if I had a dollar for every church that that mistake has ruined and for the birth of countless ministries that, that have ended up in scandal, disaster, or even apostasy. But what we need to do is go back to the text. Uh, I don't want to just pontificate on those ideas and begin, begin to see how Paul develops this point around maturity in his example of exercising the gift of prophecy in tongues. He uses those two in contrast to each other in the, cor- in the church at Corinth. And all of this revolves around kind of a, a foundational statement or a controlling thought for working through the rest of the passage. And it's this, verse 20. Brothers, do not be children 
in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. It's a call to mature Christian thinking, painted on the backdrop of these spiritual gifts in the local assembly. So you don't want to miss this and just get tied up with the gifts themselves, or you'll miss where Paul's trying to go with all this, where the Holy Spirit is leading us. What Paul does so carefully is tease out the features of this mature way of thinking, actually in a negative way. He's going to look at the features of the immature thinking, which by the opposite, it's like playing Jeopardy. You know by virtue of the answer what the question should be. So you go back and you say, okay, I I see these negative things. Well, the mature Christian should be thinking in a different way. And this makes the whole discussion really useful for us in our place and in our time, even though our particular assembly doesn't necessarily suffer from the chaos that evidently prevailed there. And so let me give you his first one, and it's this. The immature does not reason from a historical frame of reference. The immature never reason from a historical frame of reference. Uh, Let's go back to the nursery. Babies only have one frame of reference, the immediate The more immature you are, the more you are driven only by the immediate. How I feel right now. And babies have honed this down to a perfection. They have three things. Am I tired? Am I hungry? Am I uncomfortable? That's all they want to know. So if I'm hungry, feed me. If I'm tired, let me sleep. And if I'm uncomfortable, change me. Right? But that's, that's it. Now, they don't care if you met those needs last hour, yesterday, last week, or last month. Now is all they know. That's immaturity. Interesting, that's kind of where we can go easily today, isn't it? A bit of our culture is locked up in that. All I want to know is about my current state and how I feel. So this is the very first thing that Paul has to address. He does it in verse 21. That, that is our, our baby there. I'm not saying this is you. It might be me. Actually, last week when I had such a sore throat, it was me. And that's all I knew, how bad I felt right then. So Paul takes them on this journey. He's, He's got this issue of tongues and prophecy before him. And he goes, now here's an interesting thing you need to note. In the law, it is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. What? He takes them out of their immediate circumstances and says, you need to go back to Isaiah 28 and think about something that came long before. In effect, he says, you're all wrapped up in tongues and prophecy the way you're experiencing them in your congregation right now, but without any regard for how this might fit into God's overall historical redemptive plan. You're you're dealing with these things like babies. In fact, tongues in particular has a purpose you may not have even considered, if I can paraphrase Paul, because you're all just wrapped up in what's going on around you. And in this context, he shows that tongues... This gift of speaking in a language that the speaker doesn't know, whether that's an earthly language or an angelic language, I'm not going to go into here, but it has a function which is decidedly not for the edification of believers. Have we even considered that? They apparently had not. That's why he brings it to the forefront. Instead, it's a sign of judgment against Jewish people who have disregarded God's plain word to them in the past. That's the context of the Isaiah passage. That they've, they've neglected the word of God for so long that at some point he's going to bring foreigners on them and they will speak the words of God, but they won't understand them. In judgment, it'll come from foreign languages. And Paul ties that together with what's going on at Corinth. It's astounding. And it's very informative for us. I've got to go back and re-examine what I might think about this this doctrine. I, I don't have time to unpack that fully here, except to say that this shows their immaturity and their being rather unspiritual because they never even took the time to search out God's word to see if this phenomenon was addressed before or what it might mean. They just ran with it. They just ran with their current experience. 
They're like spiritual babies, he goes on to say in verse 22. Thus, let me amplify, tongues are not a sign for believers. They they don't say anything about the spirituality of a believer. But for unbelievers, what unbelievers? The Jewish unbelievers that we read about in Isaiah 28. Well, prophecy is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. And actually, in the original, sign doesn't appear in the second part. Prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. It it, it ministers to us in a unique way, and yet it has an additional application. He's going to do that in just a second. So tongues are not to be thought of as signifying something about the spirituality of the believer, but as a sign to unbelieving Jews that they're under the judgment of God. They will, if they were to come into an assembly and everyone was speaking in tongues, wouldn't they just think you're all mad? They'll think you're a bunch of nuts. And it won't expose them to the gospel. It'll only speak about their lostness, something which they still need explained to them. If it isn't interpreted for them, they can't even know that. So, so don't put your eggs in that basket unless you really know what's going on here. The spiritually immature often scorn or at least neglect the Old Testament. They, they have a tendency to neglect church history in examining the way that God has dealt with his people throughout the ages and how Old Testament prophecies, prophecies might impact present-day phenomenon. And the mature go back and say, hey, we, we, we need to work through this in more, more detail. So also, in contrast to speaking in tongues happening in an unregulated way, we need to consider how being moved by the Spirit to speak in a way others can easily understand takes precedence, but as he'll carry out in the chapter, that needs to be regulated too. That isn't just freewheeling either. Unless, he says, like with tongues, back in verse 5, someone interprets. So the immature do not reason from a historical frame of reference. They only deal with the immediate. And we need to be drawn away from that. We need to be thinking about the eternal. What has God been doing? Where is God going? Let's have that broader perspective than just the immediate. The second thing he draws to is that the immature do not think about their gifts in a context of how they may contribute to others putting off sin and growing in Christ's character. They're more interested in simply expressing their gift, not the purpose of the gift. He shows shows us this in verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn. That's good. Somebody suggests a song we ought to sing. Uh, A a lesson. Great. Something from the scripture. A revelation. Their hearts have been stimulated by the word of God, and they've got some, some light on that. A tongue, speaking in a language, or an interpretation. Well, whatever it may be, let all things be done for building up. There's a purpose here. Let it be done in concert with what God is doing. And if the building up, Paul mentions here, is taken as the same that we saw in the Ephesians passage, and I think we have to do that, the scripture is unified, then this becomes the key to understanding every spiritual gift. And here's the question. As you consider yourself and your own spiritual gifts and what God may give you, and we'll tease a few of those out in a few minutes, how does it contribute to my brother or sister knowing and growing in Christ? That's the question about my gift. Not do I get to express it, but how does it contribute to my brother or sister knowing and growing in Christ? You see, that moves it to a whole new category. But the immature have a tendency to just ignore that context. We get some further insight into that idea in 24 through 25. You see, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Reminds you a bit of the day of Pentecost, doesn't it? They heard the people proclaiming the mighty works of God in Acts 2.11. That's, that's what tongues was doing. And, and somehow they understood what was being said. Whether there was an interpreter, we, we don't know specifically. But we do know that the content of what they heard in, in Acts 2 is that they heard the people declaring the mighty works of God. And then Peter preached. And they were what? 
they were convicted of their sin. They were called into account. The secrets of their hearts were disclosed. Uh, Teasing that out just ever so slightly. Does it mean that somebody uh, supernaturally blurted out their individual secret sins? No, that's that's not in in the text at all. It was the result of the word of God being pressed on them at that moment. It's in line with with what the writer, what Luke writes in Hebrews chapter 4. Send me a letter later. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's this word that pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and the discerning of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. This is what the word of God does. It, It opens us up. That's why prophecy tends to be the illumination of extant biblical truth. And again, this helps us understand this prophesying, whatever else it may include, and this is a complex topic too, it first and foremost brings biblical truth to bear in a highlighted fashion at a particular place in time. And that that can happen through anyone here. Somebody's going through a time difficulty, struggle, whatever, and you as a believer who have been, God has brought you through that and can use you to come and speak to them the word of God that comforted you in the process. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that we comfort one another with the comfort wherewith we've been comforted. It's part of how we prophesy to each other. It's not the whole of it, but it's part of it. And it amplifies what Paul said back in verse 3, that that prophecy is to upbuild others. He uses three terms there. To encourage them in the faith, to console them in staying the course through difficulty, and to exhort them and help them in their Christian walk. Are we using our gifts for those ends? That's what he's after here. A third thought he has, and I'm only picking out four. There's, there's more here, but I'm going to stick with just four. The third is that the immature tend to oversimplify complex teachings of Scripture. They love trite little phrases. They love to bring everything down to short formulas that, that don't take into account nuance and complexity and other things that, that, that Scripture might inform Paul develops this especially regarding the gift of tongues. And and we can't go into it here, but this is often the case with even major doctrines of Scripture, isn't it? Those who try to oversimplify topics like election or God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. I mean, we like to have those in nice, neat packages, but Scripture doesn't always present them quite that way. Or the problem of an an all-holy and all-powerful God allowing evil to exist? It's not a simple thing to answer. How about the varying experiences that different ones have in regeneration? We were just talking about this with a group of pastors the other day, and some were saying, you know, I remember that moment when I was converted, and others said, yeah, I don't remember that moment at all, because in my own experience, I, I always knew God was real, thanks to being raised in a Christian home, but, but it was at eight that I realized that I was a sinner, but, but others in my family haven't had exactly that same experience. They can't remember a time when they really weren't a believer. Or, or when that moment was. We, we can't impose that on people. Uh, maybe views on church government or views on Bible translations and others. And, and that displays, this, this oversimplifying of things displays a, a, an immaturity that just isn't useful for the body of Christ. Here he notes that tongues specifically in this passage has at least four different ways of operating. And that's only in this passage. You go back to Acts 2 and in a number of other places and see something else in in addition to this. But, But he mentions that tongues can function privately. It can function publicly. It can function, contrary to many today, in prayer or even in singing or praise. He brings all these up in this passage. So you've got to unpack that and say, how does all that work? And so he calls us to think more robustly and and always in terms of the greater good. Whatever this is, how can it be used to, to contribute to my brother or sister's growth in Christ? 
some of the implications of thinking more robustly about tongues, he goes into in the chapter. Let me just tease out a few of those for you. In verse 13, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. So ones who have this gift or think they do should also pray that they might interpret what is said. Why? Well, ostensibly so that it can help others. But keep in mind, help others what? Put off sin and grow in the knowledge and character of Christ. So much of what is often referred to as as prophecy or tongues in our day is little more than the type of, of vapid sentiment that you get from reading a horoscope. That isn't a gift of God and to encourage people in, in growing in the image of Christ. Something's, something's amiss there. Now, I might add that if no interpretation is forthcoming, if you have this gift or think you do, and you exercise it privately, it's, according to this passage, something you should pray for the interpretation. And I would add, if no interpretation is forthcoming, it might be reasonable to question whether or not this is, in fact, a genuine gift from God. Things have to be dealt with more complexly than we might think. Or secondly, in verses 14 and 15, for if I pray in a tongue, so he obviously says that it can be used that way. My spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what am I to do? Am I to stay there? Am I to say, well, that's the way it works? No. He says, no, I'll pray with my spirit, but I'll pray with my mind also. I I, I need to find out what this means and take it to another level. I'm going to pray for interpretation because I can't let it just go. I'll sing praise with my spirit, but but I'll sing with my mind also. Apparently, this gift can function in prayer and even singing or worship. But once again, interpretation is needed for it to be beneficial even to the speaker. So he's giving really clear things here, but I wonder how many have taken the time to really search out how a passage like this functions, or do we just deal with our experience? With comprehension, otherwise it's useless. A third thing he brings up in verses 27 and 28. So, uh, assuming you were in the assembly, a, a gathered group like this, and anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be only two or at the most three. I've, I've never been in a place where it's been regulated that way, where, where the gift has been manifested, but it should be. He he gives such clear direction here. And let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, well, then let each of them keep silent. Rather than do that in the church, no, keep silent and speak to himself and to God. Don't go there. Fascinating. These things have to be taken in a more mature way. There needs to be regulation for order and the benefit of the larger group. Even with prophecy, there needs to be regulation. He's going to get to that. So that even though I'm stirred by the Spirit to speak what I hope is useful to the congregation or somebody else in the congregation, others are to weigh those utterances to be sure they do in fact comport with Scripture and accomplish the goal of helping others grow in Christ. He's really plain here. Unfortunately, this just doesn't get taught as a plain passage, but it's profound. I might add that it's in this context, and I won't unpack it here, that Paul says women in this specific case are to keep silent in the church. In other words, when it comes to judging the prophecies publicly, that's not their role. That's left to the leadership, to the the pastors, the teachers, the elders, the overseers. As we saw back in chapter 11, women may pray or prophesy in the congregation, so you can't be contradicting that here. That can't be his purpose. But judging those prophecies falls back to a different group. And and that's his point. Uh, A fourth one on this. In verse 39, So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Now, people like to do a lot of gymnastics around that verse and just say, well, I just wish that last phrase wasn't in there. (laughs) Tough noogies is there. I think that's in the original Greek. It says tough noogies. It's in parentheses. So, so speaking in tongues is not to be forbidden, but a simplistic sweeping away of the, groove of the gift because it may be too complex to deal with is not a mature approach either. You know, we, we've got a broader thing here to start wrestling with. A fourth thing. 
The immature assume their gift or gifts give them some spiritual authority and chafe against that of others. It's going to bring this up in, uh, in verses 37 and 38. So, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, here's a good one. He should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. Whoa. And if anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. Wow. Those with a gift, especially a verbal one, can begin to imagine that their gift trumps everything else, and therefore, they ought to have everyone's ear. I've certainly witnessed that at times over the years, and Paul's careful to set this one right. Spiritual people, and mark this down. This is really good for you, whether in this context or any other. Spiritual people, truly spiritual people, will always acknowledge both the apostolic authority of Paul and what he's writing here is the command of God, not mere opinion. It's not just good advice to be taken or left at will. Just go on the internet or TV and just see how many will lightly put forth their revelations or opinions, no matter how they contradict scripture, as though something they have some kind of new authority when the Holy Spirit through Paul says, look, this is the command of the Lord, not something else. It's current in some circles today to claim that some of what Paul wrote in this letter earlier, for instance, regarding the roles of men and women or sexuality are outdated or merely cultural and that society has evolved. But here we're given not, we're not given that license. We can't go there. And spiritual people Genuinely spiritual people will recognize that. And if they reject that, they're to be rejected. That's pretty hefty, isn't it? Even those who might claim the gift of prophecy, however we define it, are bound by the authority of the apostles passed on to us in the scriptures. We have to go there. This is so important in abiding that Paul says in verse 38, as I already have it here, if anyone doesn't recognize this, he's not to be recognized. You are not to give them a voice. Heavy. God's people, spiritual people, are always a people yielding full authority to God's word in their lives. Well, then what are we to do with all this? We've got all this stuff to mess with, and I... I just have a couple of suggestions, uh, four, that I want to bring to your, to your mind before we close here. Uh, four concluding thoughts, if you will, to kind of tie all this together. And first, that we all may know how to conduct ourselves in Christ's church for his glory. I want us all to know how we ought to be conducting ourselves. That, that's Paul's concern. He wants them to know how they ought to conduct themselves. And, and in every generation, we need to come back and look at that again for ourselves. When Paul was writing to Timothy, he said this, 1 Timothy uh, 3, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. We ought to behave a certain way, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. So my, my, this morning, as, as I look at this, I said, whether you remain here at ECF, whether you're a member here or an attendee here, or, or in time you end up in some other place where things are far different, there's a whole different type of church atmosphere how, and how the spirit and the gifts might be manifested, I want you to know the, the right foundation in evaluating what's going on so that you can contribute well. So whether you're here or anyplace else, I want you to be equipped for that. That Christ might be best represented by us wherever we find ourselves. We need to know what that looks like in our gathered worship. Because it's him that we come to glorify and it's his people that we come to bless. So, so you know, whether you're in a, whether you're in a super strict, uh, whether you're in a Mark McClements Presbyterian church... All right, or or whether or whether you're out there somewhere with, I won't mention a name. You'll know how to how to comport yourself in that body of believers. Second, every gift the Spirit gives falls under the umbrella of being given, so as to help one another grow in the knowledge of and character of Christ. Please don't let go of that. It's absolutely essential. Now, for some of you, and let me, let me tease this out a little bit. For some of you, that may be something like the gift of giving. 
You give financially and you have the resources to sustain and and even expand the ministry of the word here in this place or whatever congregation you're a part of. Then use that gift with this in mind that you want to see people grow in Christ. Or maybe your gift is hospitality and you provide venues both in this and, and outside of this immediate assembly for this work of ministry to continue in a more personal and, and an intimate fashion. That's awesome because, because God's given you a gift for this and, and that can be used so that we can grow in grace together. Maybe you're gifted at administration, <laughs> a gift I definitely do not have. And you know how to help the, the local assembly organize and function so that the gospel ministry goes on smoothly and efficiently so that people can grow in the, in the knowledge of Christ and that, that ministry can continue in a, in a local place. Prayer is a vastly needed and critical gift, not just a responsibility. Some have an unusual faculty for prayer. Use it. We need it desperately. And and where you don't just pray for people's circumstances, but, but how they might redeem those trials so that they can grow more in Christ. I, I, I don't want to just pray for Ann Hortense's hangnail. I want her trial to be redeemed by saying, okay, I'm going through this. How do I co-opt this that I might grow in the, in the knowledge of who Christ is and what he's done in my life? I mean, you pray for both, right? But, but especially that. Helps are a perpetually needed gift mentioned in, this, in the scripture. Whether individuals or, or the congregational efforts as a whole, coming alongside to help the ministry of the church function well and stepping into people's lives where you can to encourage them in the faith, that is fabulous. And some of you, you've walked with Christ for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And, and some of these young believers, they're struggling with stuff and they think it's so weird that maybe they're the only one who's ever struggled with this. And, and you've seen how God has sustained you through it all. Prophesy to them. Did you hear that wonderful prophetic hymn that we closed with? Be still, my soul. That's, that's the guy saying, look, I'm talking to myself. It's a wonderful book. This, side, this isn't in your notes. Uh, not in any notes. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a wonderful book called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures. One chapter in there, he talks about the fact that we've been given one mouth to speak with, but two ears to hear with. But he says, an, an, an awful, a big problem with Christians is that we don't talk to ourselves enough. We don't go back and prophesy to ourselves, be still, my soul. My God is on his throne. And and do that for your brother or your sister who you know is going through trouble. Those who exhort are needed. Those who exhort the lazy or the distracted to get back on track. Comforters for those who are wounded in their battle against sin and and the trials of life. Email, phone, letters, and face-to-face encouragers to to help us fight off worldliness and pursue Christ-likeness. Teachers to help us understand God's word so that we can battle the world, the flesh, and the devil more effectively. And whether or not gifts of healings are, are through certain individuals or the one getting the healing is the one receiving the gift, the scripture isn't 100% clear there, I can tell you that health being restored so that we might continue to serve the body of Christ seems without question a great thing. Faith. There are those with a gift of faith who can encourage others to steadfastly trust God's word and character in times of distress and confusion because they know it so well themselves. We need you to exercise that gift among us. A word given in an unknown tongue, which is then translated that that spotlights a critical biblical truth to be recalled and acted upon when seeking to grow in holiness. A mind opened by the Spirit to understand a a particular situation in the life of an individual or the whole assembly and, and with wisdom as to how to respond, all with the growth and ministry of the church and God's people at the fore. Those and and all sorts of other gifts are desperately needed. 
And each can contribute to our common good and the common goal of being conformed to the image of Christ. We don't want to let go of that when rightly utilized with that goal in mind. And it's never a focus on, but I need to exercise my gift. Uh, That's unspiritual. When we're intent on helping others and one another seek and know and live Christ, then the various gifts will be manifest among us as the Spirit deems best to meet that goal. It takes us back to to chapter 13. This is the more excellent way Paul talked about. More excellent than seeking any gift is is seeking the spiritual enrichment and maturity of my brothers and sisters in Christ. Such love will find us rich in the gifts that accomplish that end. Third, and I'm almost done here. All of this then begs the question, and here's one for each of us. Am I seeking the Lord so as to contribute to the spiritual growth and maturity of others in Christ? Am I? Am I conscious of this? Am I intentional? in this. We all like to contribute, but here's the contribution. Am I seeking the Lord so as to contribute to the spiritual growth and maturity of others in Christ? Um, Years ago, that wonderful uh, uh, pastor of years gone by, Richard Baxter, um, in Puritan England, uh, had an interview with everybody in his family once a year, everybody in his church once a year about 300 families. It was thousands of people. And he would sit across the table from you and say, uh, let me ask you a question. In the past 12 months, have you grown spiritually? And if they said yes, then he said, how? What's that look like? And if they said no, he said, why not? (laughs) Everybody got that interview every year. They knew it was coming. All right, so, so we'll do that just a little less confrontively here. Uh, so uh, are you seeking the Lord so as to contribute to the spiritual growth and maturity of others in Christ? Uh, if yes, how? If no, why not? And that begs a related question. Am I seeking to grow in Christ? so that I might have somewhat to offer others in their progress? Am I relevant to what God is doing in and through his church? Uh, Side note, sorry. Uh, I started early, I get to finish late. Um, That's how you make up for it. Um, We've come out of this particular time, but there was a time a decade ago or two decades ago when the great, great call was... How do we make the gospel relevant to people's lives? And of course, that's completely the wrong question. Because the goal of the gospel is to make us relevant to God's eternal plan. It's to bring us into relevancy, not to make him relevant. He's got a plan. He's got a goal. He's working. The question is, am I part of where he's going? That's what the gospel does. It brings you in line with him. It doesn't bring him in line with you, except that's the best line you want to be in. Fourth, lastly, how might we better here at ECF facilitate these opportunities? It's a question I really thought about this week as I was coughing and hacking and losing a lung. Uh, and, and it dawned on me that we've, we've actually begun this in a, in a way because of Jim and Jim's insistence that we shift a little bit on Wednesday nights and move to this so what now format for Wednesday night. And maybe Wednesday nights can, can give us a, a, a venue for that. Should you be stirred by the Spirit from a Sunday morning sermon or a Sunday school class or, or something you've read or that stirred your heart and, and maybe have helped others in the body? Write it down. Mark it down. And maybe we can open some additional time on Wednesday night to speak to one another there with, with the comments being weighed by the leadership as the text tells us to do. Wouldn't that be great to exchange that with one another? But whatever gift you may believe or actually possess, begin to think about your own growth in, in the likeness of Christ's character and how you might contribute to your fellow believers 
in that end. Knowing him more. Trusting him more. Loving him more. Knowing his truth more. Christ did all that he did that he might reveal the Father to us because that's our highest good. And when we enter into that, we do all that we, might, we can do to reveal Christ to all for their highest good. And I know well, this is one of those things as I thought about this this week, how many of you, especially moms and dads, are doing this already at home all the time with your kids. You're trying to help them mature in Christ. You're trying to help them come to grips with these things. We're just saying that carries on, goes beyond there comes to the whole assembly but seek the Lord to be used in each other's lives for their best good before the Lord and see if he doesn't open opportunities you never dreamed of in the process he who descended that's Christ who descended from heaven is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things And in that ascension, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up of the body of Christ. And that building up looks like attaining the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. But rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Man, what a a picture. So, beloved, let's be Christ's people on Christ's mission. Do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. When it comes to sinning, let's be naive. But when it comes to loving and serving in God's house together, let's be mature. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word and for its (coughs) amazing clarity and specificity. Thank you for how it speaks to us as a congregation all these years later. That it's not frozen in time back in the city of Corinth or any place else. Father, thank you for this group of people. I, I feel so amazingly blessed to be with a group who, who want to hear and know your word and to grow in these ways. It's astounding. It's a privilege, but we want to do better. We want to do more. We want to really contribute to one another in in our growth and in the loveliness and the character and the beauty and the glory of Christ. Help us to learn how to dress one another that way, to bless one another that way. And of course, Father, that starts with those who don't even know Christ savingly. And and so we want to make him explicit to them as the Savior of souls, as the substitutionary sacrifice for sins, as the Redeemer, as the one who has come, that they might be reconciled to you through faith in his atoning sacrifice. May they begin that this very day, putting their trust in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.